Okay, as we continue our studies in the book of Revelation, I want to do two things. Number one, I want to tie up something that was brought to my attention from our summary uh, in our last session on the seven churches, uh, the letters to the seven churches of Asia Minor. In the first point of summary, we mentioned that the church will and must strive to maintain both doctrinal and moral faithfulness until the Lord returns. And the point that we want to make there is one that we often make when it comes to Christian duty, sanctification, that that striving is never the cause of our gaining anything. Our striving is always in response to what we have been given in the gospel. But the reality is, both individually and corporately, the church is always striving to be what we are called to be, not so that we can gain a reward or that God would therefore do something for us. He's given us everything in the gospel. Our challenge is to understand what he has given us and make use and application of it in all of our doings. So I just want to make that clear. Now, the second thing is, even though we gave an overall summary of the seven uh, to the seven uh, of the seven individual church, uh, letters, today what I want to do in preparation for chapter four is sort of we'll, we'll end up kind of backtracking a little bit. It's not going to cover all of the same ground, but if we look at chapter four, because that's what our focus is going to be, chapter four, the entirety of the chapter. And in fact, I'll go ahead and read the chapter now. It says, after this, I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven and the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit and behold, a throne stood in heaven, one with, with one seated on the throne and he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne was, were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with gold crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was, as it, uh, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion and the second living creature like an ox. The third living creature with the face of a man and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, day and night. They never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him 
who is seated on the throne, and they worship him who lives forever and ever. And they cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. May God richly bless both the reading and the hearing of his holy word. Now, as we segue into chapter 4, it's important for us to see the content of this chapter as not only a transition, but in a sense, a continuation of what the Lord has been showing John. In chapter 1, verse 19, in preparation for his um, ministry or his speaking to the seven individual churches, the Lord, the angel told him that he was going to see things as they presently were. And this is what kind of led him into uh, the letters, the content of the letters this, uh, to the individual churches. And what we'll see here in verse 1 of chapter 4, the same angel is now preparing him for the things that are to come. Now, part of what is to come is not what's actually recorded in chapters 4 and 5. That'll come later. But we'll see a symbol of it as uh, in, in a moment. But what I want to do, because of this transition, what John has seen are thi is, is things as they are on the earth in general, and in a sense you can say as they will continue to be until the Lord's return. There are four things that um, punctuate redemptive and human history that John has already seen and we'll get more details on that based on what uh, the things that will take place. But what he's already seen and what we've already covered in the first three chapters is, number one, Christ's present rule over the kings of the earth. That is as things are. Now, there is nothing that he will see in the things that are to come that will dislodge or undermine that truth that's already established in verse 1. Christ is the ruler of the kings of the earth. He never loses control. He never loses power. He ne his, his sovereignty is never diminished. That's the point that John has seen. That is what is, and that will continue to be until the consummation. A second thing that he has seen as is, and it will continue to be, is the efficacious nature of Christ's finished work for the redemption of believers. The efficacious nature of Christ's finished work for the redemption of believers. Uh, going back to chapter 1, verses 5 and 6, we pointed it out when going through it, but let me just kind of repeat what he says here, because this again is true. What John is going to see, and, and especially when you consider the imagery with which these messages will be given to him, there are some stark and difficult situations that will be un unveiled to him, but it doesn't change the, the, the present rule and reign of Christ and it doesn't change the efficacious nature of his finished work 
of redemption for believers. And by efficacious, we simply mean it accomplishes, a deed accomplishes what it was intended to accomplish. So in chapter 1, verses 5 and 6, it says this of Christ, To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom of priests to his God uh, and Father. So what John has seen is Christ's continuing sovereign rule over the kings of the earth. He has seen the efficacious nature of Christ's finished work for redeemers. He is, it has also been revealed to him that the people of Christ or the people of God are continuously presently waiting for his physical return. That's captured in chapter 1, verse 7, that we are waiting. So all of human history until Christ's actual return is, an, is in anticipation of his physical return. And then the fourth thing that John has seen is the perpetual presence among the militant church um, or Christ's present or excuse me Christ's perpetual presence among the church the militant church with all of their struggles with all of their conflicts with all of their trials with and with all of their flaws so that's what he has seen what he has already seen and this is as things are as things are in the created realm Christ is sovereign over all of the kings of the earth. His work of redemption is efficacious to all of the saints. We are presently living in that span of time where we are anticipating his physical return to the earth. And he is perpetually present with the church militant. The church militant is not always a pretty sight. The church militant is always engaged in struggles and conflicts and trials and they are full of flaws but yet Christ remains with them so that's what he's already seen now as we shift into chapter 4 chapters 4 and 5 represent the pivot point where the focus and and I say in chapter 4 and 5 because actually what's in 4 and 5 is John gets another glimpse of things as they are, but what he has seen really in the previous three chapters is things as they are on the earth. What he will see in chapters four and five is things, and especially in chapter four, things as they are from the vantage point of heaven. So therefore the shift in chapter four or the pivot point is in the very first verse where the angel tells him that he will see things that must occur. And to that end, we'll look at a few things. We'll start. I don't even want to give the number because I don't know how far we'll get a chance to, to go. But in verses 1 and 2. So the angel tells him in verse 1 to come up here and I want to show you. You must see the things that must occur. And so the first thing that John sees is, as, as this angel speaks to him, he sees a door standing open in heaven. He says there's a door standing open in heaven, and the voice tells him, I will show you what must take place. 
Now, a couple things that we need to, to point out. Obviously, a door in heaven is intended as a symbol. Doors serve purposes here on earth. We are, so this is, this is imagery uh, that, that John is seeing something. And, and this pattern of revelation of heavenly realities and that, that language of heaven being opened in various ways is something that's actually repeated a few times in uh, the book of Revelation. We see it in chapter 11, verse 19, chapter 15, verse 5, and chapter 19, verse 11. And in essence, it is, it's a way of expressing John being able to see something that we don't ordinarily see as humans. So in a vision form, it's uh, similar, I guess you could say, to Isaiah's vision in chapter 6 and Ezekiel's vision of the Lord in Ezekiel chapter 1. But this idea of getting a glimpse into heaven, it's, it's not a real door. And what John sees is a vision. And in this vision, in fact, it's, it's, it really kind of represents a prophetic call and commission. That, and that's the way I know Greg Beale or G.K. Beale emphasizes that, that John is now being commissioned. His, his, his commissioning as a prophet is, is kind of taken to another level. He's already spoken prophetically uh, to the churches, but now he is about to glimpse the glory of God in a way that a few prophets have, Isaiah being one, Ezekiel being another. So this idea of an open door, God is giving him a glimpse into what some would call the throne room of heaven, which is why uh, the, the image of thrones is so significant there. Actually, there are 25 thrones. There is, there is the throne of God, and then he is surrounded by 24 other thrones. Which brings us to the second thing, which is the thrones themselves, and especially um, because, as I mentioned, the emphasis is usually given to the 24 thrones and the 24 elders. But it's the first thing that he sees is the throne of God. And that certainly corresponds to the vision that was seen by uh, that was seen by by uh, by Isaiah. But also it's similar in language and imagery to the vision that Daniel sees in Daniel chapter 7. So what, what Isaiah or what John sees here is a throne and one who is seated on the throne. Now what's interesting when he talks about the one seated on the throne, in contrast to the vision that he gets of, the, of, uh, of Christ as the son of man in chapter 1, where there are physical features that are described. His hair was like wool, even though it corresponded to Daniel's vision of the Son of Man. His feet were like bronze, etc. Notice the difference here in chapter 4. The description is not in, in terms of physical features or uh, a physical or human anatomy. The description that he sees of the one seated on the throne, it says... Um, at once I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne, uh, 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 behold, a throne stood in heaven, 
with one seated on the throne, and he who sat on the throne had the appearance of jasper and carnelian or sardius, as it reads in some translations, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. So in other words, what he sees is, is not the description of a human. What he sees are, uh, he, he, he gives the description in terms of precious stones, an emerald, and then a rainbow surrounding the throne. Uh, and of course, you can cross-reference the rainbow, the presence of the rainbow being in heaven to the rainbow of Noah as a covenant reminder that God would not destroy the earth by water anymore, but rather that, um, you know, it says not by water, but by fire next time. So it's a reminder of God's continuing common grace to the created order, that the whole earth would never be destroyed again until the end. So what John sees in the language of precious stones, the emphasis here is not on a person, but the emphasis is on the glory of the one who is well, of God. It's the glory of God. It's similar uh, to Moses when he wanted to see God's glory and he was placed in the cleft of a rock and what he saw was the hintermost parts of his glory passing by because God reminds him that no one can see my face and live. And as Jesus revealed to his disciples, no one has seen the Father except the Son. So what John sees is are, are images of the glory of, of God as he is seated on the throne. So that's the first aspect of, of this portion of the vision, that he sees God's glory. And this glory does correspond to other passages in the Old Testament that speak of the brilliance or the effulgence, as R.C. Sproul would put it, the effulgence of his glory, the very brightness of his image uh, is what John sees. The second, which is the third point here, the second thing that he sees, in addition to seeing the throne of God's glory, John now sees 24 thrones. Uh, now, the 24 uh, New Testament scholars, Old Testament scholars, biblical scholars, are not in full agreement on A, excuse me, the significance of the numbers, or B, the symbolism of the elders. Now, some have argued uh, that the 24 corresponds possibly to um, something else that John sees later, where he sees the 12 gates to the city, which represents um, the, uh, the apostles, the, or the foundations uh, of, the, of the gates, representing the 12 apostles, or it, and, and then the 12 gates representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, we know that 12 is a significant number uh, some, uh, that's used symbolically uh, throughout redemptive history, corresponding primarily to the 12 tribes. Um, but, but people are not 
you know, they're not in unison on that, that whether or not this re uh, represents the 12 nations or the 12 tribes combined with the 12 apostles, therefore 24, or if, as some have suggested, I think Dennis Johnson is one who makes this point, because this is a place of worship, and what's being described in chapter 4 especially is a scene of worship. So Dennis Johnson has suggested that possibly the number 24 corresponds to the order of priests, 24 uh, orders of priests, and the number of singers that were associated with the Old Testament temple. First Chronicles chapter uh, 24 verses 7 through 19 and also First uh, Chronicles chapter 25 verses 6 through 31. In chapter 24 is where it speaks of the, the orders of priests. And then in chapter 25 is where it speaks of the orders of uh, the singers. And again, Dennis Johnson suggests that 24 could represent the two sets of 12 in the New Jerusalem, because that's what John will see eventually, the New Jerusalem, um, referring to the 12 pearly gates, bearing the names of the 12 tribes, and then the foundation stones with the names of the 12 apostles. So we're not really clear as to why 24. Uh, it, could, it could correspond to the image of worship in the temple with the 24 uh, orders of priests or, and the singers, because that's going to be the theme of chapter, uh, chapter 4. Or it could have broader implications in terms of representation for the, the kingdom of God, the people of God. And I will admit that in times past, I kind of leaned in the direction that the 24 elders probably were indicative or symbolic of the, the, the totality of the church. I don't think I would stand by that. And certainly it's, it's not hard and fast. And I will say this in passing, that it's not a make or break point as to what is, whether or not this is a representation of the church itself, or if it has broader creation implications, which now I'm of the mind that this is just, what John is getting is a glimpse into the heavenly council. For instance, in Job chapter one, we are told that, um, that God is meeting together with the sons of God which is referring to the angels. And that's when Satan comes into the presence and God asks him, where have you been? And he says, I've been up and down the earth, etc." But that, that whole scenario there, the idea of the counsel of God, uh, it probably, this scene in chapter four is probably more indicative of the angelic counsel, the elders representing the angelic counsel rather than necessarily the 12 tribes versus the and and the 12 uh, apostles of the church uh, not that when we speak of the counsel of God it's not as if they are giving him advice but rather he does portray uh, his his angels who are his messengers uh, and his representatives his spirit being uh, were created as spirit beings 
that, that do his bidding throughout the created order. So it's more a sense of that sort of heavenly counsel, not that they are meeting to counsel, but it's, it's a, a representation probably closer to what is seen in, jo in Job 1 rather than a representation of the church. So this is probably a view of the, uh, the elders as the heavenly counsel of angelic beings in the same vein as uh, Job chapter uh, 1 verse 6. Now, the fourth thing that we see here is four living creatures. And the four living creatures are similar in appearance to some degree to um, the images that Ezekiel sees in both chapter 1, verses, 30, uh, verses 15, and uh, well, actually, yeah, in Ezekiel chapter 1 and then later in Ezekiel chapter 10, that have the responsibility of bearing the throne of God. So they are similar, but yet dissimilar. I think if we look at them, we see uh, really a representation. Going back to those four living creatures, it's a representation of animal, uh, bird, human, and spirit life that's been created by God. So if you go back and just look at it, um, Again, uh, the four living creatures, it says um, uh, in verse, uh, verse 7, the first living creature like a lion and the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And it more, more than likely, it's a representation if the uh, 24 elders are a representation of the spirit life created by God, then these four living creatures are symbols of the, cre of the physical life created by God. So the point being is all of creation, the spirit and physical things created by God, because God is the creator, not just of the physical world, but he is the creator of all forms of life. So we see the angels who have been created with a, a, a different purpose than man as uh, spirit beings, and the angels are given form as God uses them in different ways. But for the most part, biblically, angels are spirit beings. And so we see those spirit beings represented in the 24 elders and then all of physical life on the earth is represented by these four living creatures the uh, the one that's like the lion and then the ox and then man and then a bird so it's simply the created order both man or both both uh, animate life physical life and spiritual life in the presence of God the fifth thing that John sees is a glassy sea before the throne. So before the throne of God, going back to, um, to uh, verse 6, it says, And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. Now, I'm not a big fisherman, but I 
used to fish with my dad, and we would do deep sea fishing as well as on lakes and, and so forth. And my first several experiences being out on a boat, it was anything but a glassy sea. And so I had the misfortune of getting seasick on a number of occasions. And I remember the first time that I got a chance to go out on a boat with my dad and the waters had calmed. They, they had become calm. And uh, my uncle was with us and they got, they, they came and picked me up because I had to be taken back to shore. And so they brought me, they came back to say, okay, you can go out now because now the water is like glass. And that's what's being described here. So, and the difference was it wasn't, it wasn't choppy, the waves weren't high, and the point is the water is calm. So what John sees, now remember, this is a continuation of what he has seen already in the world. So before he sees what's going to happen in the future, he sees things as they are now. What he has seen in chapters 1 through 3 are things as they are now from the vantage point of earth. What he sees in chapter 4 is things as they are now from the vantage point of heaven. What he's seen in the earth are tumultuous waters for the people of God. They are still his. They are, they are saved uh, eternally by his grace. They, there are some that are faithful. There are some, even those who are faithful, are tried. So what John has experienced, remember chapter 1, he says that he is a partner with them in tribulation because the book itself is written while John is in prison. So therefore, from his vantage point, it's choppy waters. But from the vantage point of heaven, everything is tranquil. There is no sense of emergency in heaven because the waters before the throne are like glass. The, the storms that are experienced in earth, they have a purpose and partially what John is going to see, and in fact a big part of what John is going to see is why things are the waters before the throne of God while, while it is calm, the rest of his created order is experienced turbulence. And the rest of the created order is, is, is experiencing all of the trials and the conflicts and different things, but yet God, from his vantage point, things are calm. So that's an important distinction of what John is going to see. So even as he will peer into the future of things that must occur. It will be viewed from the lens that the explanation of those things has everything to do with the tranquility that is before the throne. The sixth thing that he observes is worship. And this worship is worship coming from the angelic beings and worship coming in essence from the creation. In the Psalms, we often read, let all of the earth, let the rocks, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. 
And so really what John sees is, is everything that has breath, praising the Lord. Uh, so he observes this worship of the angelic beings. And one of the things that I, I love about this chapter, because I've made the point that uh, in chapters 4 and 5, we see the contrasts of worship. We see worship as it ought to be, and we see the kind of worship that Adam could have, uh, could have offered to God prior to the fall. And that's what we see in chapter 4. And then in chapter 5, later where we, see the, where we see a scene of worship, it takes the fall into place. And we'll see how that plays out in terms of its content. But for the time being, what John observes is worship. And so the next thing to look at is what is initially chanted in the worship. In verse, um, in verse 6, and, and I think this is important, or verse 8 I should say, I think this is important because of who it comes from. What John sees first are the angelic beings, or the 24 elders. But the one that he sees, the ones that he sees worshiping first is the living beings, those, the, the physical forms of life. And so in verse 8 it says, And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, Holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and who is and is to come. That's very much like the song of praise from the seraphim um, in, in, or yeah, the seraphim in Isaiah chapter six. But they sing this this praise, they chant this praise: Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. In Isaiah 6, and it, it just it, it kind of builds on that and says, the whole earth is full of his glory. So everything that God has created that has breath is singing this praise to him. All of the living creatures, those who occupy, in essence, the, the earth. And we can put it in these terms. That as God's and as the animated life that God has created on the earth without the fall is doing what they are supposed to do, they are honoring the holiness and the glory of the one who created them. And then it's the 24 elders. It mentions that whenever the living creatures give glory, which is perpetual because they never cease to do it, whenever they give glory, glory and honor and thanks to him who is who is seated on the throne who lives forever and ever then the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever and they cast their crowns before the throne saying worthy are you O lord our, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for all things, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Now, we know that Satan was an angel, and perhaps this is where the resistance and rebellion of Satan comes in. He wanted the glory rather than to give glory to the creator. 
And so what John sees is all 24 elders hearing the praise of the animate life representing creation, uh, the, the earthly creation and all that is in it, giving proper honor and respect to God the creator. The 24 elders take their crowns off, cast them before his feet and before his crown. And in, in other words, they are recognizing that their exalted position is by his favor. They are not anything in and of themselves in a very real sense, even though they are not physical beings. They are spirit beings, but their very existence comes from him. And so as the source of life, <clears throat> he is worthy to receive honor. He is worthy to receive glory. And the way they sum it up is because you created all things. And all things, they exist by your will. All things exist and were created. They are grateful for their existence because they have been created by God himself. Well, I probably went a little bit longer there. I didn't want to break it up, but that's the essence of chapter 4, that John sees this in heaven behind this, this open door. So it's almost as if he gets to be a fly on the wall, and he sees what things are like in the heavens. Having seen the disturbance in the earth, having experienced his own persecution in the earth, he sees that right now in heaven, God is sovereign and glorious and all created beings are still subject to worship and honor him because he is God. We'll pick up and we'll begin chapter five next week. So uh, let's pray. Our God and our Father, we do thank you for your words and we thank you even for the way in which you have arranged your word, reminding us that as we deal with the difficulties and the ups and downs in life, that before your throne, things are tranquil. We thank you for the reminder that we are seated with Christ in heavenly places. So we pray that as we deal with the rough waters of the here and now, that our mindset would be shaped by our present position with the one who is sovereign over all of human history. Thank you for the comforts of your grace. Thank you for the sufficiency of your grace. We pray for our church family locally, and we pray for the church universally, that your people would continue to be nurtured by your grace for your service and for your glory. We ask all of these things in Christ's name. Amen.